Welcome. Welcome to you watching online. Those of you in the house, it's so good to be with you. My name is Janice Wood. I'm one of the staff pastors here. And we are in the middle of a series on the book of James, or the letter of James, which is probably a more accurate uh, way to talk about it, written by the brother of Jesus, which is uh, a powerful thing. You know, I've heard somebody say, if you can convince your brother that you are the son of God, you must be the son of God. I mean, that's a powerful, it's a powerful thing to have your brother uh, writing about you and believing to this degree. That is evidence of the gospel for sure. Well, um, you know, if you have never read any of the Bible, if reading the Bible is a struggle for you, can I just invite you to jump into James? There are no hard words in this book. As a matter of fact, it is so clear and so easy to understand. It's almost difficult to speak about because how can we make it any more simple, any more clear than it is? Uh, our small groups are studying this book at the same time. So if you're not in one, I invite you to try to find one that suits you at our, go to our website and you can uh, find the available groups there. But uh, we're going to get into this today. This is our second one in the series. One of the things that bugs me personally, and I bet it bugs you, is having someone deceive me. Having someone lie to me or try to get me to believe something that isn't true, um, you know, that just gets me at a, at a really core level, especially if I fall for it right? Because that must mean I'm gullible, I'm not very smart, I wasn't paying attention, and, um, and, and, and I just hate that. As a matter of fact, I think that that's probably part of the angst of our entire society right now. When we think about what's going on politically, when we think about what's going on in our society and all of the information floating around, none of us wants to be deceived. And we're even arguing about which sites and sources are deceptive and which ones are trustworthy because at its core, that's the last thing we want. None of us want to be deceived. Well, James actually talks about the idea of being deceived three different times in the passage that we're going to be looking at today and says so that's kind of going to be the lens through which we're looking. Uh, but interestingly, he doesn't tell his readers not to be deceived about, you know, listening to this source or listening to that source or, or whoever. He says, don't deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself. So if you need a title for the message this morning, you can call it this, don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. And there are places and ways in our life that we do kid ourselves, right? What's the last thing that you bought that you had to talk yourself into? And then you're thinking, hmm, feeling a little sheepish about that. Maybe I shouldn't have done that after all. Because uh, we're good at talking ourselves into th some things. What's the last thing you watched that you talked yourself into watching? and you kind of knew better. What's the last thing you ate? And you kind of wished you hadn't have eaten that because you know better, right? There's, there's places in our lives when we get lazy and we do what we want to do, we work really hard at convincing ourselves it was okay, it was a good decision, or it wasn't that bad. So think this morning about the kind of things that we let ourselves get away with. And James invites us in this letter, if you consider yourself religious, if you call yourself a Jesus follower, then it's time to level up. It's time to, to kind of uh, practice what you have been saying, what you have been preaching. It's time for you to put that into action. You've got a good swing, but now we need some follow through. 
So join with me. We're going to start in James chapter 1, starting in verse 19. If you have a device or a Bible with you, feel free to turn to that. Otherwise, you can always find it up on the screens behind me. James 1, 19. My dear brothers and sisters, let me just stop for a moment. I love this about James. He says that phrase so many times in this letter. Do you know that James was actually historically known to be a very peace-loving character? He was a very gentle soul, and it just comes through in this letter. He is really giving some strong advice to people. He is writing to believers everywhere, not to one specific church with one specific problem. He's writing a very general letter, and he often softens everything he says by my dear brothers and sisters. Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Verse 26, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. We could pretty much just close up our books and go home. I mean, I mean, how do you make that any more clear than what he is saying? I mean, it just, it's just right there. If you can read the entire book of James and not feel caught up a little bit or convicted, you know, I really need to spend more time with you because it's, a, it's just so clear. But let's, let's say a few things that I think God wants us to hear anyway. I believe in our society right now, we worship speed. Everything is, you wanna make money in this world, invent something that happens, that makes things happen faster. Communication, travel, cooking. If you can help us lose weight faster. Anything you can help us do that we want to do, if you can help us to do that with any kind of speed, we, we want that. We are impatient at a core, at the core of who we are in our society. We, we applaud people who have a quick comeback. We applaud people who can, who can come with a zinger, with a clap back on social media, somebody who can do that. In fact, we are likely to think that people are smarter if they can talk faster, if they can respond more quickly. And weirdly enough, it even enters our political scene. We're getting ready for, I think, I haven't paid a whole lot of attention, but I think we're getting ready for some political debates going into the election, which is typical these days of how we do politics. I studied history for a really long time, and I want you to know they didn't debate back in the day. We didn't have as many. I mean, there was a period where they started, but in the earliest days, um, trust me, George Washington did not debate anybody to become president. If he would have debated somebody, he probably would have debated Alexander Hamilton, and Alexander Hamilton would have won if all you cared about was a quick comeback and somebody who could think fast on their feet. If that's all you cared about, you would have elected him and you would have hated his public policy. I guarantee it. You would have hated his financial, his fiscal policy. Right? Now, Alexander Hamilton is a great, you know, we can love the Broadway show and we can love the soundtrack, but I'm telling you, he would not have made a good president. We have become a, a society that values something that's a little deceitful, how quickly you can talk. And I bet even in your own relationships, at least one of you needs to know that the person who can talk the fastest is not always right. The person who can speak the fastest doesn't mean that they're the, the most articulate doesn't mean that they're right. Sometimes we have uh, honored the wrong thing. We are fast at almost everything except listening. 
Slow to listen. That's something we are so bad at. We cut people off, I do at least. I size people up too quickly. I find the hole in their theory fast so that I can work toward that, and that's not what God has asked us to do. And James is saying, do not deceive yourself into thinking that a quick reply, spurred by a quick temper, is the right move. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. When our words, particularly when they are fueled by anger, particularly when they are fueled by that, they are rarely helpful. They are often effective in getting what we want, but they're very, they're not helpful, particularly in putting us in right standing with God. All I, all I can think of is, I was working so hard for a, a, an illustration of this, all I can think of is starting a, a, a fire. When you want to start a, a bonfire to burn something off and, and you have to build that and coax a flame into existence, with some kindling and something that, that burns rapidly and you know and you blow on it a little bit and it, it takes a little bit of effort to get a fire going depending on your materials that you're using but if somebody comes up from behind and throws gasoline on that thing you will get flame you will have an effective fire you may burn your eyebrows off in the meantime but you will get a flame that's a little bit what anger does to the comeback, right? When we're so quick, we're, we're so quick trying to just respond and get this out, and it does not produce, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. But we can manage to bully someone into submission. We can chase them off of our social media post. We can intimidate someone into behaving the way we want them to behave. You know, football season is starting, and I notice that there's such a difference between the way different coaches coach. There are some coaches who coach with their anger and their passion and, and their intimidation. There are other coaches who coach very gently. They hold the line and they both get the job done, but one of those does not produce the righteousness that God desires in your human relationships. So James invites us to consider the power of our words and to rein them in. I like James because he uses cowboy metaphors or Yellowstone, whatever you're identifying with these days. Uh, we lived in cowboy land for a while, so that's meaningful to me. Later on in the book, we're gonna, he'll talk about horses with a bit in their mouth and how you can control a horse with, with a bit. And he's talking about the way we use our tongue and how it gets ahead of us and we, we don't keep a tight rein on it. And he's saying, rein it in. Words are powerful. He's not denying that, but rein it in. There is a place between your head and your mouth or your head and the keyboard where you need to pause, where I need to pause, where we do not have to give the first response that comes into our head. As a matter of fact, we'd be way better off if we just chilled out for a little bit and just waited because some of the words that we put out there, we can never get back. When uh, Pastor Joe and I do marriage counseling, one of, one of the questions we often ask just to kind of get a sense of where people are is, what is the most hurtful thing anyone has ever said to you? Think about that for a moment. What is the most painful or hurtful thing anyone has ever said to you? And it comes from a variety of sources usually. The responses I've heard over the years often come from an authority figure, uh, maybe, maybe a teacher or a leader who said, out of anger, you'll never amount to anything. Sometimes a parent who said, I wish I'd never had you, or again, predicts some failure over your life. 
or a spouse that says, I wish I had never married you, I don't love you, I never loved you to begin with. Things that are said in anger that you just can't take that stuff back. You cannot take that stuff back. So James reminds us to rein in our mouth, especially if you consider yourself religious and you don't rein in your mouth, you're kidding yourself. You're just kidding yourself because the truth is words matter. Words matter. Do not be deceived into thinking that what you say doesn't matter. So what do we do about it? James actually has a couple of suggestions. What should you do about the fact that we all know our mouth gets ahead of us sometimes? The first thing he tells us is slow down. Slow down. Now, we've just finished in Madison County the first full week of school, and so can I say to uh, some children out there, if you're listening, stay in school because you're going to need some math in your life. And this is a place where you need math. Count to 10. You learn to count to 10, you will do so well in your relationships throughout your entire life. You'll do so well with your boss. <laughs> You'll do so well with your employees if you just learn to count to 10 before you say the thing that you so badly want to say. And when you feel your blood pressure rising and you're just like, that's not the time to respond. That's not the time to respond. I actually have a shark uh, tank idea out there for somebody. I don't know if somebody wants to engineer this and come up with it, but if you do, you don't have to give me any money, but just give me credit, okay? So I don't have one of those smartphones, but some of you do. You know these phones that apparently can like track all kinds of wild information, and I don't know. I'm just assuming that they can check your, your blood pressure, right? Can you imagine if you had a smartphone that noticed when your blood pressure was rising, and when it got to a certain level, it immobilized all your devices and put them in airplane mode. <laughs> Would that not be fabulous? You like cut you off from communication for a hot minute until you chilled back out. I think that is a fabulous invention and somebody needs to run with that and then you let me know, okay? And give me credit. I, I mean, think about it now. That would not help you in your personal interactions. You're still gonna have to use some self-discipline there. But the point is, when we're at the height of our anger is rarely when we have something we need to say, so slow down. Just slow the whole process down, all right? And here's a little side PSA for parents. Don't let your children goad you into a response. When you tell your children no, it's no. When you tell them yes, it can be yes. And you may get a, a flurry of why, 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 tell me why, convince me. And you don't have to convince your children of anything. You're the parent. If our Heavenly Father can leave us hanging with all the why questions we've given Him, God, why? Why did this happen? Why didn't this get any better? And it's not that He doesn't have answers. He's just not sharing them right now and you'll be fine. Either you're not capable of understanding or he's going to tell us later. Same with your children. You can say, you know what? We'll talk about that later. But right now, and James will say in a couple more chapters, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's all you need to do. You're not responsible to give a stronger answer than that. You do not have to defend yourself about everything that you know you're doing. The bottom line, we are better served when we calm down, scroll on by, settle your soul, and ask Jesus if you need to respond. And if he gives you words and permission, then march on, march on, right? But um, we, at the very least, we need to slow down. The second thing that James is telling us to do, and I think this is another wise idea from him, number two, fill up, fill up. 
James says, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. The word planted in you. You know, in, in our small groups right now, we're encouraging people to commit to memory one of the verses out of each section of James that you're studying. I don't care. There's so many memorizable verses in this book. I mean, just pick one. It doesn't really matter. Commit it to memory. Memorization, scripture memorization, is not a child's activity. It's an activity of people who want to plant the word deep into our hearts so that we can use it, so that it's available to us later. Jesus said it this way in Luke 6, 45. A good man brings good, work, good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. If we want to have a better reign over what comes out of our mouths, we have to have a better reign over what we consume. We have to have a better reign over that. Think about the things that we have been watching, the things we've been reading, the things we have been discussing. They will show up in your conversation. That's just how your mind works. Because when you're looking for things to fill conversation, you're just gonna reach into the stuff that you've actually been putting in there lately. That's the filing system that you have. I learned a long, long time ago as a preacher's wife that um, if I did not want to hear a particular story or event or thing come out over the pulpit, I should not discuss it with my husband moments before he got up to preach. Right? Now, he didn't say anything out of turn, but my point is, whatever I talked to him about right before a message would be right in the front of his brain. And if he decided to go off on a rabbit trail and give an extra explanation about something, it was liable to show up. If I didn't want that to happen, I had to zip it on Sunday morning. Just don't even, don't even go there because the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. It's just a reality about how we are. So the things we consume will affect the way we respond. Moving on, second place that James talks about deceiving ourselves, starting in James 1.22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and then after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard and doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Some of your versions will say stained by the world or unspotted by the world. I was thinking about that as I was preparing and it made me think about all of the times when I have made my coffee in the morning and I'm rushing around and I slop it on myself or I spill it on my leg or, or on my shirt or whatever and I thought, you know, the only time I spill coffee is when I'm in a hurry. The only time I spill coffee is when I have gotten so greedy about getting my tasks done, when I've gotten so greedy about the accomplishments that I am set on on that particular day, when I am less likely to notice the fatherless and the widow in the midst because I'm busy thinking about myself, that's when I'm most likely to get spotted. Now, James may have had something else entirely in mind when he said that, but that's what it brought to me. And it just, it fell in line with the idea of slowing myself down so that I can notice those around me 
who are in need. But know this, the enemy is never happier than when he has convinced you and me that what we are doing is enough. What we're doing is plenty. Y'all good. You got out of bed this morning on a really rainy day and you showed up. You tuned in online, you showed up, and that's all you really need to do. The enemy is happy when he can lull us into some sort of complacency and let us believe that what we have done is, is good enough, right? You, you've worked hard, so you should sit for a while. After all, you've told a couple people off online already today, so your spiritual work is done. You know, you have done what you need to do, right? And, and let, me, let me say this too. This is not about shaming. When, when the book of James gives all of these instructions and all of these shoulds, it's not about the shaming culture that is so prevalent today that says, you know, who you are is good and don't let anybody put you down for who you are. It's not about that. It's not about uh, excluding you for your behavior and you can't be a part of the, the team. It's not about that. But he is saying, don't get complacent about where you are. This is about letting yourself off the hook spiritually. Don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself into thinking that, well, I did this one thing and that's all I really need to do. There are a lot of people who talk a big game, but they never follow through with any life change. Maybe they can win a theological debate, but they struggle to live it out. And the people around them see that. They don't put it into practice. Don't be deceived into thinking, listening, good as it is, learning, good as it is, is enough. James has a lot to say about faith and deeds and actions, and we'll get into more of that in coming weeks, right? So don't kid yourself. Use what you've learned. A hammer in a toolbox is useless if you never take it out. It's just useless. Sometimes we're busy congratulating ourselves on attending church, listening online. Maybe you listen to extra podcasts, you read a bunch of books, you've learned a lot of stuff, you've memorized a lot of verses, but at some point, we must demonstrate life change. Life change. When I was teaching at the University of Kentucky, um, I had an eight o'clock class up there, and, uh, and I had to hustle to get out of here and get up there and find parking and do all that stuff, but you know, it's hard on students. They have to do that too. And I had this one student who showed up every day for class. I mean, she was, she was a little bit late, you know, 8.03, 8.07, something, you know, but, but she showed up. And, and I know it was a struggle because she showed up every morning in her pajamas. <laughs> every morning she wore her pajamas and looked like she hadn't combed her hair in about two days. But she was beautiful and her face and her makeup was perfect every single time she walked in the door. <laughs> She had her priorities, it's okay. And she showed up and she sat in class and never gave me any trouble at all. She came and took notes and paid attention and participated. Come exam day, and, um, and I didn't notice because I don't really take attention on exam day. I figure your exam is, you know, uh, attendance enough. And so um, when I go, got through grading them all, I'd already had a couple more classes. She'd been in class and I never found her exam. And I said, I never found your exam, did you take the exam? And she goes, um, no, I didn't come. I said, well, we're, why? Were you planning to take it? And she goes, I'm just not good at exams. I have a lot of anxiety when it comes to tests. 
And I'm like, listen, I get that. There are some students who absolutely freeze up with the test. They learn very well, but the format of the whole thing is just puts them off. And I said, so, okay, I get that. Let's work with you. Let's find a play. You know, let's set something up. You know, and, and she just would never commit to that. I'm telling you, that student came to every single class that I taught that entire semester. She had perfect attendance and never took a single exam. Not a single one. She never set one up, she never took it, but she kept coming to class. Now, I don't know if she thought I was gonna be able to give her special credit or something for having perfect attendance, but here's the deal. Attendance will only get you so far. At some point, you have to demonstrate that you've learned something. That's what the exam is. And that's what, that's what James is saying. You can have perfect attendance, friends, but there, there's a time when you need to listen a little bit, but you need to do something with what you've listened to. And it's not going to be enough. We're not going to get brownie points for having shown up at 8 o'clock in our jammies. We're going to have to do more than that. The truth is, actions matter. Actions matter. And James is reminding us that we need to use the word that is planted in us. Because here's the deal, folks, our lack of action will cancel out every word we've ever said. It will cancel out every word that we've ever said. We live in the heart of cancel culture. And you know what cancel culture is looking for? They are looking for hypocrisy. You say one thing and you do something different. You say one thing, but you don't do that. They will call you out on it and they will boycott you and they will ask their friends to boycott you and they will attempt to limit your influence and to the point that nobody will even defend you anymore lest they get boycotted. That's the heart of cancel culture, right? And I'm saying people are watching and if we are not putting our, our, our words into practice, they will call us out on it, on that and with good reason. In short, Saying one thing and doing another is hypocrisy. No one takes us seriously. No one should take us seriously if we talk a good game and we never follow through. Because here's true religion. True religion is to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Folks, that's what we're doing here. That's what we did when we helped that um, single mom with her three teenagers who's getting a fresh start and we were able to go and build beds for her and, and just help her get off the ground a little bit. Are you kidding? We need to be able to notice that and do that. Receive God's word and act on it. Last place that James talks about deceiving ourselves. I'm going to start in James 1, 16 through 17. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And then starting again in James 2, 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here, uh, here's a good seat for you and say to the poor man, you sit there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? See, even at this point in history, there was a wide disparity in wealth and income. You know, we like to talk today about how, you know, 1% of the population is holding the bulk of the wealth and how disturbing that is. That is nothing new. That is nothing new. In fact, wealth is determined by its distance from poverty, to be honest. You know, the poverty level is determined by how much it takes to actually live in some sort of, of, of life and be able to afford shelter and goods that are here. And they had a struggle like that, just like we do. And James is saying, don't kid yourself about money. 
Wealth can be incredibly deceptive. Wealth can be incredibly deceptive. First of all, wealth tends to represent security. Wealth tends to represent security. You know, we think that we can buy God right out of our lives. If we have enough money, we really don't need to pray that much anymore. I remember my husband coming home from one of his trips to Africa, and, and he talked about um, a, uh, a man he had met there on, uh, uh, that traveled the back roads. I don't know if they were Botswana or one of the, I don't remember which country they were in. But anyway, this man said, you know, you Americans have so much money, you don't have to pray as much as we do. He said, but when we're traveling in a truck and the truck breaks down on a back road, we don't have any mechanics around. So we all pile out of the truck and we lay hands on the hood of the truck and we pray for it. When is the last time you prayed for a vehicle that broke down? You called AAA or drug it somewhere or called a friend or whatever, right? I mean, if you don't have anything, if you do not have resources, you rely on God in a different way. The same way with, with um, our physical bodies. So many healings we see in third world countries where they don't have the money for the kind of care that we can get here. But here, when you have an ailment, when I have an ailment, maybe we don't think to pray first. The first thing we do is think about what we're going to do, what medicines we're going to get, what surgeries we're going to get to fix that. We we almost want to buy God out of our lives. And folks, you never want to get to the point where you don't have to rely on God anymore. Because you may think your wealth is enough and it's going to do the trick, but 2020 proved us wrong, did it not? You may have done everything right. You may have run your business correctly. You may have been generous with the poor. You may have tithed well. You may have invested in all the right mutual funds and done your 401k with the most conservative and the best advice that anybody could give you. And yet, and yet, something that happens in a worldwide situation throws everything off. Wealth is deceptive. It is not secure. It is not a security for us. We dare not think that. Number two, there's a, there's a deception with wealth that thinks if you don't have it, you think you'll be happier if you did. If we don't have money, we think a little bit more would do the trick. Just a little bit more. I remember when we were raising our children, and our five children were small, and, and my husband, and I, we weren't even in ministry then, and, um, and you know, we, we scraped along on one income because I was a stay-at-home mom, and, and I remember telling him one day, I said, Joe, we have everything in the whole world except cash. I said, we have got five healthy children. We have got great relationship with God. We have a great relationship with each other. Every, we have everything that we could ask for except money. We didn't need it to be happy. You don't need it to be happy. And a little bit more does not do the trick. Here's the other problem. If you do have money, the deceptive part is to begin to say, I earned it. I deserve it. I did things right to get to this point, right? And we begin to lean on those things in that way. And once we've begun to do that, and once we begin to feel responsible for our own wealth, we risk showing favoritism because we begin to assume that somebody out there who doesn't have it did it wrong, wasn't wise enough, wasn't smart enough. And now we begin to assign character values toward the people based on their economic standing. Can I say, we just don't know anything about anything. If somebody comes in here wearing shiny shoes and shiny clothes and shiny jewelry, you don't know nothing about them. We don't know if they inherited it. We don't know if they stole it. We don't know if they earned it. We don't know where it comes from. 
We don't know those things. Wealth is so deceptive. But we show favoritism when we assign value to people based on their economic status. And James says, don't be deceived by the wealth that you notice in other people, what they dress, what they drive, how they live. But notice this too. He did not say it was a sin that you noticed it. It is not a sin to notice the differences among ourselves. The differences in the way we look, the differences in the way we live, the differences in what kind of money that we see represented in your clothing. It is not a sin to notice that. Another time when I was at the college, it was at Eastern, um, I met with some professors once a month and we had a little discussion group and uh, we selected different topics to talk about. It was right after 9-11 and, uh, and we were discussing racial profiling. And I will never forget this, not another Christian in the room that I know of, and one of the psychology professors said, there is no way to ask people not to sort out the people that they see based on their characteristics, that they have black hair or blonde hair or a beard or not a beard. There's no way to ask people to do that because it is primarily the first order of your brain is to sort information. Sesame Street taught us this. One of these things is not like the other. It's a sorting mechanism. There is no sin in sorting out, in taking um, a view and noticing what's going on. Because here's the problem. The challenge, according to James, is when you show special attention to someone based on what you notice. That's what gets us into trouble. When we treat people differently based on that, that is the heart of this um, uh, favoritism. Jesus says it this way in John 7, 24, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. He's not saying don't make a judgment. That's called discernment. Now, if you judge someone and condemn them, that's different. But when you're making a discernment, that's something different. It's okay to notice those things. But hear me, favoritism is the birthplace of discrimination. When we favor one group, we risk discriminating against another group, and that's where it shows up, okay? Because we tend to invite people in who can return the favor. We tend to favor people who have more than us as if we will somehow get a leg up, or they have a boat, maybe they'll let me spend time on their boat, whatever it is, while we neglect the people who don't have anything to offer us. And Jesus said, go out into the highways and the byways. Bring everyone in, right? Because the truth is, our attitudes matter. The attitudes that we come up with based on what we've noticed, that matters. Yes, we're going to notice those who are in need. Yes, we're going to profile those that are in need, the fatherless and the widows, so that we can accurately help them. And when we see someone with means, we need to realize that they might have just as much spiritual need. We need to judge correctly. James finishes his letter with this truth. James 2.12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. When we notice stuff, when we size people up, do it with a dose of mercy. Do it with a dose of mercy. We don't know their whole story. There are complicated pathways to poverty. Complicated pathways to poverty. There are complicated pathways to wealth too, for that matter. 16th century English preacher John Bradford said this, there but for the grace of God go I. 
if it weren't for the fact that I was born here, had these parents, was in this region, I could be just as bad off. I don't know. I maybe wasn't exposed to the same background that they were exposed to. Mercy always triumphs over judgment. Because here's the deal, mercy costs us nothing to give. It costs Jesus everything. It costs Jesus everything. And he invites us to extend it to others. Folks, we're gonna go into a time of ministry. Here at the Vineyard, we really believe in the power of prayer and the ability to pray over people and give folks a, a chance to respond to what God does in our hearts while we're listening. Now, during um, since COVID has started and the distancing has started, we've had to change it up a little bit. We no longer do that up front, but we have prayer people that are stationed out in the commons area where we have social distancing set up. So during this last song, can I just invite you all to your feet? And if God is doing a work in your heart or you just want prayer over something, you don't have to tell them the details of it. You can just walk out there, walk up to anybody you want, and they will pray over you. I just had the, the notion this morning as I was preparing in first, the first um, service that God wanted to do some work in some of our hearts in terms of us kidding ourselves, where we've let ourselves off the hook about a few things, and he's just bringing a few things to our attention. I don't know what it is. We've covered a lot of ground this morning. It could be anything. Or maybe you just need prayer over something else in general. I want to invite you to go out and get some ministry during this last song. And if you're online, there is a prayer chat button. So don't be afraid to ask that. We have live people waiting for that as well. <laughs>